Well, a few days back, it was April Fool's Day. And do you know what we did on April Fool's Day? We released our annual Fool or Forecaster report. We've been looking at all the predictions for the property market in 2020 and seeing whether they got it even vaguely right. After all, what a year to be attempting to predict anything. Did anyone actually get it right? Who should we have listened to? Should we have listened to any of them at all? And I had a bit of fun researching more about how the elephant actually prevents us making good predictions. Now, you can download our free 2021 Fool or Forecaster report now on the website. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? The elephant in the room.com.au. I think we all know that 2020 was a roller coaster that was absolutely impossible to predict. Now let's break it down into three stages. Chris, do you want to give us a quick rundown of some of the forecasts made at each stage? We go pre-lockdown, mid-lockdown. And post-lockdown, let's kick it off with pre-lockdown. So I think it's really interesting because as the pre-lockdown was the sort of start of 2020 and uh, coming into 2020, the, you know, the market had really bounced back, you know, in the second half of 2019 and everyone was, you know, super positive, kind of like they are at the start of 2021 and everyone was predicting, you know, maybe, you know, 5 to 10% sort of rises, you know, different cities. Um but things very quickly sort of shifted, right, with, with COVID and everyone went to the opposite sort of direction and produced predicted falls of maybe, you know, 10 to 20%. And so it was a real crazy three months where everyone was super positive to super negative in, in just such a short space of time. And, look, I remember myself. I mean, it was, it was a rare time when pretty much all the arrows point in the same direction. Everyone agreed that, that things were going to take off. And then I you know, we, we're measuring clearance rates because that's obviously what we do in Sydney and Melbourne in particular, and they were in the 80s in the beginning of March and uh, the 14th of March was where it suddenly bit and we think, uh-oh, <laughs> this COVID thing's got some teeth, this is going to come to us. And, yeah, we and I was tracking all that and then they sort of dived very, very suddenly and then, of course, then we couldn't have auctions or we couldn't have online auctions anyway. So as a barometer of measuring things, uh, certainly that was whipped, you know, the rug was whipped out from under us. But And we'll go into sort of who, who said what and who got it totally wrong and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I guess that when all the um, the fear hit the skids, you know, the market hit the skids, the fear took over, everybody sort of completely about-faced. But the post-lockdown predictions, you know, except for Melbourne, of course, the rest of the country started getting back to some level of normality and then things started taking off and, you know, was there great variance in terms of who was predicting what at that time? And I guess we're talking around June, July then. What did you see at that time, Chris? Well, I mean, I guess the, I guess a bit more normality was sort of coming back to, you know, everyone was kind of realised what 
would happen if you know there was outbreaks there would be lockdowns and maybe the economy wouldn't fall off a cliff and etc and so i mean but even still in that june sort of may time there were still banks making you know pretty dire predictions and i think that was the interesting point uh that i noticed i thought the banks would be a lot more positive at that point in time you know you don't really want to create a, a frenzy with people selling um and so, you know, the banks are really often talking their book and talking it up rather than talking it down. But, you know, I was just, I guess, surprised at how negative the banks were in their sort of quarterly updates, um, you know, the different banks. But everyone sort of bounced back, you know, pretty fast, you know, that June onwards and started to reverse their forecasts. And by September, they, you know, people were predicting big rises and, and going into this year even bigger. So, it was a really sort of uh, roller coaster, really, with the bank sort of predictions. It was actually, and, and I agree with you that you know the banks are a bit conflicted, really, aren't they? Because you know, a they're such a major portion of our share market is the banks, and then such a major portion of their business is mortgage lending. And you know, we all know that the you know residential property is the single biggest asset class in this country. So, so much rides on the the uh, confidence. And, you know, people, well, I guess value is holding, right? So, and confidence obviously is what pushes prices up and, and maintains values. But the RBA also were pretty um, diabolical in some of, some of their releases as well, weren't they? I mean, it wasn't, it was, it was like nobody in the financial market seemed to have, have a cool head at that time. Yeah, I mean, you know, AMP Shane Oliver was the same. You know, he was super positive at the start of 2020. Came to COVID, 20% falls. You know, um, CBA got a lot of headlines for, you know, one of their scenarios that said a 30% fall. Um, RBA, same sort of thing. They said one of their worst case scenarios was a big sort of fall. So, you know, the, a lot of the media at this point in time were, were catching on to these big headlines. Um, you know, Lewis Christopher, obviously the, the doomsayers out there were having a bit of a field day at this point in time. Um, but, yeah, it, it was a really sort of scary moment where there was no real positive voices out there, but we did find a few, but, you know, there wasn't many. Now, we will get to who was not predicting doom and gloom um, a little later, and we've got a few gold stars to hand out, so we won't uh, steal that. We're not going to give you a spoiler as yet. But... I think, you know, you raise and you've written about this in, in the Fuller Forecaster report, Chris, about the danger of scenarios, you know, uh, that, you know, obviously the banks have got to run them and, you know, economists run these things all the time and then they go to the media with them. So, so I guess what's going on there and why are they so dangerous? I've really struggled with these uh, for many years where, uh, you know, doing financial advice, who would build, build investment portfolios, and there's a lot of organisations out there that build portfolios for advisors and um, you know dealer groups and you know investment houses, etc. And they would also say, you know, the next year there's four different things that could happen, and uh, it's 50% likely this is going to happen, and 20% this, and you know 10 and 10 or whatever. Um, and I used to always laugh because it's like, where did they get that 50% right? And they were just like covering all basis, you know. This is <laughs> things go really well and this is if things go really bad. And um, well, they also thought that things were very linear and uh, predictable when we all know if you go back every year, um, I challenge yourself to go back every year and think, do you think what happened would happen? And um, you'll find that lots of things will surprise you and things will either go much better than you expected or 
you know, these big events like, you know, COVID or there's lots, you can go back every year, Brexit, Trump, you know, um, where there's something that's happened that's completely changed the paradigm. So I think with the problem with these sort of scenario analysis, they're too vague, then they have too uh, much, I don't want to, I really don't know where they get the value, like the percentage of what this is likely to happen. Mm. And you also get stuck with, well, what do I actually place my bets on? Do I bet it on the most likely thing that to happen or not? And you actually just confuses you as someone investing. But I think the real danger is that is the they're kind of like dynamite or gold to the the media because the media are going to look at that worst case or the best case depending on where they want to angle the story. Um, and CBA were you know sort of. If you type, you know, CBA 32% fall into Google, you'll just see how much that one presentation got spread around the world, how Australia's biggest bank is predicting 32% falls to property prices when they weren't saying that at all. That was just one of their scenarios. They were actually, you know, suggesting maybe 11% at best. Uh, And so you can see how they get taken out of context so easily. I remember, you know, we discussed that with Shane Oliver. Um, I think he had scenarios ranging from was it five percent to twenty percent um, from memory, and exactly that he talked about. Well, the media will latch on to the, the the biggest, and and I and I guess you've got to ask the question: is why come out with the scenarios then if it doesn't really you know what they're going to do, and it doesn't really do anybody any good? So why do it other than just getting your name in headlines? Mm. And I think this is you know Lewis Christopher, I was you know part of this research. We all. Uh, well, maybe not all, but I saw the bricks and mortar, which is a 60-minute uh, sensationalised, um, you know, property uh, story. Well, that, that was you back know, was in talked... 2008, right? 2018, yeah, exactly. Sorry, 2018, and, yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, he spoke for them for an hour. He's wrote a blog on this mm. and he said they uh, they took out like five seconds. And uh, you've done media, Veronica, I've done media before and the camera is just rolling on you and then they just wait for that snippet and then that's what they use. And um, you actually don't know what they're going to use of what you say. So, um, you know, and he got, you know, he didn't like how 60 Minutes portrayed the one snippet, but that's what they're going to do. Um, and I think he got caught out this year as well because um, one of his scenarios was a 30% fall um, and that got perpetuated and sent across the whole market. So if you type in Lewis Christopher, you know, COVID or property downturn, you know, 30%, there's lots of articles on him, but that was only one of his scenarios. So, you know, I don't know if it's, um, you know, like you say, you should be doing these scenarios if you know that's what's going to happen. Yeah. So, and also I guess one thing that I've learned, I mean, me personally, I I don't. I think anyone who listens to this will know I don't have an economics background. Um, I've got a property background um, for the most recent part of my career, last twenty one years. But on the ground, very much on the ground. And and what the one one of the most wonderful things about this podcast for me personally is that we've been able to interview some of these amazing minds who aggregate data and then interpret it, and are economists in many cases, and are very skilled at actually running these scenarios in a professional sense. Like they're trained to do so, right? Um, what I've learned is that the reason that they do these isn't actually to help individuals make property decisions. You know, they're, they're running these scenarios for much bigger purposes than, than um, you know, whether I should buy now or wait, whether, you know, whether I should sell my investment property or whatever. Whereas a lot of people who read these headlines are making their little micro decisions based on on headlines, which are taken on the most sensational scenario of these these modelling, which has been 
put together for a completely different purpose. And I think that's one of the big, big dangers of, it, of these scenarios as well. I mean, you're so right. I mean, a lot of the, you know, Steve at the Kook, uh, we've had lots of different people, Solus Lake, you know, et cetera. You're right. They are economists and they are speaking mass market. And then people go and read a, a mass market publication and then they take their one little snippet um, and then try to apply it to their situation. I mean, I just jumped off the call with a client and, you know, completely confused with well, what to do, you know, conflicting data out there, you know, speaking to, you know, family, work, media, um, their past decisions. And so um, it's, ve- it's very tough to sort of get sense at these sort of media organisations. Now, I thought the episode that we uh, had with Shane Oliver was really interesting and I thought he was very generous in how he explained the process that he goes through in, um, in coming up with his forecasts. For anyone who wants to go and listen to that, it was episode 117 and, and we interviewed him in the height of lockdown or the, the height or the bottom, <laughs> the pits of lockdown or the height of lockdown, whichever you want to see. Um, now, and during that that episode, during that interview, he did muse about the challenges that forecasters have in getting it right and he did talk about the biases that forecasters are subject to in much the way we individuals are subject to all our, our behavioural biases when we make decisions about little things and big things and and I think that's uh, rather interesting and I was doing some research as well for this report on, on really, you know, why it is that predictions are so shit really and yet why people keep making predictions given that they are um predictably shit <laughs> is sort of a bit <laughs> weird really when you think about it you've got a massive probability of getting it wrong and yet you keep doing it and um you know there's a lot of biases that experts have in particular that the layperson doesn't have um and there's uh, there's a lot of study being done in this, and and uh, one researcher has come up with this concept of super forecasters, and the idea that you know you there are ways in which you can obviously flex your or um, exercise your forecasting muscles so that you can actually get it better. And um, Stuart Weems had actually pointed me in the direction of this in one of his um, one of his podcasts, and it's a political scientist called Philip Tetlock, right? And so he's actually written this book called Super Forecasting, and um, the idea that you know super forecasters can be created and predictions can be a lot more reliable and. When I sort of read some of the work that he's done and then I went back and listened to the episode that we have with Shane, it's quite ov- obvious that he must apply some of these revisionary um, practices that a super forecaster would um, would use. And and obviously, um, you know, he's looking at, at techniques for improving his predictions and, and there's that constant iteration, the constant changing. You get new information in, you change your forecast, you adjust your forecast. And I think that's one of the problems as well with, with the media is that they're not necessarily keeping up with the revisions. You know, they're probably still, you know, a lot of these economists uh, and forecasters would probably have changed their position and potentially the press releases from the most sensational recent set of models is still being um, used in articles. So the timeliness of it is something as well that that is a real issue. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, at a point in time you could make a prediction but then that could be outdated the, the next moment, that next day, uh, if new information comes in that, you know, goes against what you originally thought. I think one interesting thing I did find that uh, John Hempton, I used to work with him at Platinum a long time ago and 
he's always a bit of a quirky fella and now he's you know runs a funds management business where he shorts you know uh you know companies or markets that he thinks uh you know, are overvalued. And uh, he made some big calls around the property market about three or four years ago where he said, you know, 65% falls to parts of the Sydney property market um, <laughs> because he went around and pretended he was uh, looking to borrow money and spoke to brokers, a little bit like the big short, the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's just come out literally, you know, in February 2021 and said, look, you know, I was wrong. Um, you know, I think the market's going to go up, um, et cetera. And, uh, you know, I think that the good people who sort of know when they're wrong, they come out and actually say and fix their mistakes um, because otherwise, you know, you, you, people may be relying on your old sort of forecast or your old advice. And I think the reason why people do it is because, you know, unfortunately it's what people ask. You know, we get lots of clients asking us, well, where do you think things are going? What's going to happen here? What's going to happen there? And, um, you know, and that's really a dangerous question to ask because, Anyone can tell you anything and um, could tell you whatever's in their best interest, right? And so um, just be really careful asking that to the wrong people, that question. Yeah, well, it's a classic example of you get the wrong answer. You ask the wrong question, you get the right answer to a different question in a way. But yeah. the thing is too, I mean, when we spoke to Eliza Rowan most recently and, um, you know, and asked her what's the most common thing you asked is, oh, where should I buy? And it's it, that's the same sort of thing. It's the top 10 mm. areas for growth and that sort of palaver. And it is, I get, I'm asked the same thing, you know, Home Buyer Academy, that's, that's, we've got a little workshop on where to buy workshop because it is the most common question that first home buyers ask um, apart from investors and everybody else. But you talk about the people that change their predictions. What about the people that never change their predictions? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't want to drag on these too much, but, um, you know, cause they're already in a bit of pain, unfortunately. Um, you know, there's lots of, you know, the Harry dance, uh, our good friend, Martin North that, um, has been on here a few times, uh, you know, they've all been predicting massive falls in property and, you know, quite outspoken about them and come every year talking about how there's going to be big falls and have got big followings based on that um, and other things. But, um, yeah, they, they are the same story. It's 40% in 2021 um, as it was, or 2020 as it was in 2018, and the number stays the same but the market moves. So I don't know how that happens. Um because if the market goes up 20%, maybe you should be falling 48% now, whatever it is. So <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's always a funny thing to watch. So just be careful for them because um, at some point in time, uh, you know, they might feel like they're right, but unfortunately it's been proven again that that's not doesn't work like that. I think too with with the, you know, the perpetual doomsdayers, you know, the real property bull, a bear, sorry, yeah. is that um, – you know, they might be right in certain areas, you know, certain individuals. Once It's almost like they've got this blanket quotes and yet some people will hurt and do hurt in property and it's almost like some of them do. And I know Martin does focus very much on on the areas where which are the most vulnerable um, and, you know, but there are also those that, that really don't seem to stay you know, to change a story because they're peddling whatever it is they're peddling. I think you sort of... Um, point to Harry Dent when you <laughs> Harry Dent is I remember going to one of his uh I watched him live it would have been 2011 or something like that and it was called the great crash or something like that and uh he had a new book out and it was at a sort of a event that I was at and he was peddling the same stuff there so what is it a decade later I've just seen 
you know, when I was looking at some numbers for this, you know, he was three weeks ago, he was out peddling the same stuff. But it's going to be June 2021 where this big crash is going to happen. The so, message never never changes. I guess they, no. they all sit around with every every major catastrophe going, yes, finally, it's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but And look, you know, I'm, I'm, once again, I'm not spoiling but um, shortly, you know, we will get to our gold stars and there is one of those stars that I'm a little reluctant to give because I think they're on the other side of the equation where the bear, like it's always positive, you know. Um, so I'm a little reluctant to give that. But we will give it because you've got to be fair. You've got to be fair. As we will, if ever the property market falls 40%, we will give a gold star to these people. <laughs> <laughs> now, That's very true. You know, we do those, uh, our monthly suburb trends reports with Kent Lardner and he's made a few calls that actually we'll be putting in the 2021 sorry 2022 report it's a bit preemptive to put in this report <laughs> but um we started those I think it was in July last year wasn't it and it's been quite interesting um because well we've moved into um looking at some of these hotspot lists every month and and going through really what digging beneath the, the top line of it to say, well, what's what's really in the data? You know, what do you have to, what can you find when you ask the right questions? And he's got a methodology based around inventory levels, um, which is a bit of a lead indicator, obviously, for what's going to happen in markets. But interestingly enough, you know, when you dig into the numbers and you ask questions like, you know, look at low sales volumes and who and what's driving prices and market composition and all those sorts of things, um, you can see that, um, you know, how you do need to have micro local knowledge in order to make good decisions and how these forecasts are really not very useful. But also what I think is interesting that once a location makes one of those hotspotting lists, you know, the, where all the signs are pointing in the right direction, the place is going to go off, then there's very little time left to make a game. So, you know, hanging around waiting for people to, to make predictions and then base your decisions on that is is really fraught with all sorts of, well, it's just not going to do, really, you're relying on pure luck for it to do any good for you. I always laugh at those lists because it's, the headlines always like great places to invest or the best places to invest, et cetera. Uh, but it's, you're right. It's the people, the places that potentially have done well over the last 12 months. And a lot of the time you can knock out a few of those because the median's not right or it's too small or whatever it is. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's those lists will always keep popping up. I know you've uh, probably been asked for years to predict the next 10 locations, Veronica, mm. um, and so uh, it's best to stay away from those things. It's actually funny, you know, I, I have been asked for years and particularly when I was doing the show, of course, because, you know, that they, you know, bit higher profile than I have now really, I guess, and that you'd be asked those questions. And instinctively I just... I wouldn't answer them anyway because I just felt that I didn't really have the answer um, because I knew my area intimately and even then I couldn't choose, you know, which 10 suburbs of the areas that I know really well. It just sort of felt ridiculous. So instant, instinctively I knew it was useful, useless I should say and then now through this podcast, we've been doing this now for three years, I, I can't, it's amazing how much I've learned and how much more informed I am in refusing to do those <laughs> to give those lists <laughs> and I know exactly why not to give those lists now and take any notice of them. Now, um, one of the things I think, um, should we talk about the gold stars yet or do you want to talk about your bouncing ball, you know, the, the what happens with markets? Uh, I think it's, let's leave the gold stars, let's keep everyone hanging. Um, <laughs> I think the, 
you know, the bouncing ball is something that, you know, I think Roger Montgomery uh, really explained. It was when I, he said it, I was like, oh, that makes so much sense when he kind of explained it. And basically, whenever markets, you know, go down, uh, less people want to sell. Yeah. And so because they don't want to crystallise their losses and so liquidity dries up and that's exactly what happened in the 2018 sort of downturn in Sydney. Mm. Now, as prices kept on falling, the quality of stuff kept on falling and the listings kept falling and so it was really hard to buy in that downturn a quality asset um, because as soon as they did come on, there was, wow, oh, God, that's actually a nice property. Wow, they're selling now. And then all the buyers ran out, you know, the little herd went to that property <laughs> and it went for a decent price. Mm. Um, and, you know, there were still stories um, when the downturn was in full swing of prices still going at what they would have gone at before the downturn. Um, and so uh, we had clients miss out. And I was, so that really was a uh, key thing. And then it also explained to me, though, when things confidence does come back, there's still a liquidity problem. There's still not enough properties on the market. And then you get this influx of demand uh, and confidence that people are willing to pay more than they were and they're worried that prices are going to run them. And so then things bounce back really fast. And exactly the same thing happened in 2020. You know, we saw March, April, May maybe. I don't know, Veronica, do you reckon May would have still been a good time to buy? I reckon it probably was pushing it. Um, Yep. Yeah, and then bang, like June, we our pre-approvals were started in in May. We started to see a real uplifting confidence uh, before the market. But, you know, you really only had a month or two, maybe three, to, to get a good deal. And that's if you were ready and ready to go and had the confidence to bet against the market. So, um, yeah, trying to wait for these downturns and then trying to buy, just almost impossible even if you do wait for it you're probably going to miss it and things are going to bounce back well that's the thing and the problem is of course you know because i'm in these markets in you know year in year out i've seen that bouncing ball you you sort of feel it you 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 know i know that in uh 2017 i felt the market slow down in may and the official figures bore that out in june and that was so basically the the bottom of the market, oh, sorry, the peak of the market was uh, is well regarded to be June 2017. And actually, I'm sorry, it's July. And I go back because I, I write monthly market commentary for when we're doing price research for clients. And, and you know, I've written in May 2017 that we felt the market contract. And so, you know, and on the flip side of that, same deal, I remember the first auction I went to as soon as auctions were allowed we, you know, obviously COVID was an unusual situation in the sense that only registered bidders could be present for this property and there were seven parties there, you know, and I was like, wow, this is really interesting because every single, there's no smoke and mirrors here. Everybody knows that everyone else is here to buy the property. And and that was a really different mentality to going to most auctions where, you know, unless you stand there and watch people register, which I do, you know, there's all these hangers honors and crowds and, you know, all the rest of it. And you don't really know a lot of smoke and mirrors. This was like so much more serious in many ways because it was like they're not here because they just want to know what the house is worth in case they want to sell theirs down the road or whatever. These people yeah. are actually <laughs> registered. They're ready to buy, you know, and it, and it was a real different, different um, vibe. And, and I thought, well, this, this feels different and it took a while to bite, but it was definitely, you know, that was the early indicator that this was going to come back strong. Um, Yeah. So, and I do also absolutely understand 
what Roger Montgomery, and that was back in episode 73, if anyone wants to go back and listen to that, um, when he talks about the, the supply drying up. And that's basically it. People then they can't buy anything and there's nothing to buy. So like you say, when something comes on the market, they, there's, there's fewer buyers around shore than there are in a boom. But, mm. hey, there's still a lot more for that one good property because they've been starved for it for long enough. Um, they will go for it. So very, very interesting stuff. The other thing too is that, I mean, I know we're doing the 2021 Fuller Forecaster report here, but um, and what we're doing is reflecting on ha- what happened in 2020 uh, versus what was quite, what was predicted. And I know uh, the market turned in, in May 2019 and we know that the election and, and we know that 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 you know, looking back, we now know that was the turning point. But I had actually done some research in in April that year that looking back to where you could pick the actual bottom of the market based on resales of individual properties, and it was December twenty eighteen, and so it still took a good six months before it started showing in figures, and it, probably nine months really because it was really September before we started seeing it in the figures. So it is amazing how the market starts moving well before it's officially on the turn. Well, that's right. There's a lag in, you know, the reports in terms of medians. There's a lag in terms of even an auction could be four weeks and the market can move a lot in four mm. weeks. We've seen that at the start of this year, yep. how much things have moved since Christmas um, and, you know, what people thought was possible just before Christmas is definitely not possible post-Christmas. And so um, the real consumer confidence bounce back was really interesting in 2020 where it went from, you know, let's just call it 100, 110, you know, people are generally quite positive and then bang at, you know, 50, 60 at the height of COVID. And then, you know, not that long after people were like, you know what, the world's going to be fine. Let's just get on with it. And people were confident and knew that things were going to get better. And um, you know, that was really surprising just knowing, you know, this big shock, but ultimately humans are resilient and they're looking to get on with things. And um, didn't take long for people to be back positive. And you know, this isn't only in Australia as well. I mean, there are other countries where the property market has is, is astounded people and it's in its resilience and it's um, in the turnaround. I was reading an article in Canada saying exactly the same stuff that, that's happening UK, here. UK, US. Yeah. yeah. There's lots of countries, yeah. Despite the economy. And it's it's because I guess where cash comes from isn't necessarily, I guess the lay person doesn't really know how it all works. <laughs> You know? Yeah. <laughs> and I certainly don't. <laughs> Clearly not. Um, well, I think there's been quite a few articles that say, you know, why didn't the crash happen of 2020? You know, like it was meant to crash in mm. March, April, May. And yes, there were things that have stopped that happening. The payment holidays without doubt was a huge thing um, to give people, you know, time to mm. not have to pay their mortgages. Uh, and then obviously the big cuts in rates and the funding line the RBA did to reduce rates for borrowers. Um you know, if you can keep paying your mortgage, you don't need to sell. If you don't need to sell, the market doesn't get flooded and then prices don't fall. So I think some of that that action wasn't taken. Maybe we'd have a different um, situation, the same as, you know, JobKeeper and those things. So, um, yeah, if there no government intervention, yeah, things probably should have fallen and probably would have fallen a bit. Uh, but because of all those things, it, it stopped that sort of doomsday outcome. Mm. And that is one of the things that Martin North talks about. He talks about he's mostly talking about the areas with really, really high debt and mortgage stress, you know, and so it's um, focusing on those areas and, and you know, there's, there's yet the COVID cliff that uh, the JobKeeper cliff and the rest of it that um, could still 
happen, you know, in, in those areas. So I guess next year's report we'll be reporting on um, those predictions of that, of that and whether or not that happened or not. Okay, so our gold stars. Should we talk about um, – it does get a bit boring, doesn't it, because there are two gold stars, the two bright gold stars. I'll, I'll talk about this sort of slightly um, other gold star as well, but our two brightest gold stars are the same two gold stars that we gave last year. Yeah, so I spent hours and hours trawling, trying to find people that were going against the grain uh, Speaking common sense, I guess, not common sense, I guess it's not common, but at that point in time, you know, we're, I guess, looking at a different view to everyone else. Uh, and, and you actually put it down in paper, in national papers, because, you know, you could do a blog on a website, but you're not going to find that. So I think Stuart Weems is, um, he came out in May, I think it was, and wrote a very good article on why he believes that all the banks are wrong and that, you know, prices won't fall anywhere near what they're expecting and lots of different, a real educated reason why. Um, and I think that was really powerful because, you know, people need those voices at those times to, you know, you know, kind of wake them up a little bit. So I think, Stuart, hats off to you again. I think you uh, spoke, you know, good sense at a time when people were very fearful. And so um, you didn't actually make a prediction. I think you also predicted when the market was going to bounce back when you spoke, Veronica, in December 2018. He said, look, I think market's going to go up from here, which was a big call. So, But you know, those, remember yeah. that he got it right but he didn't, he admits that he got it right for the wrong reasons, <laughs> which I think is pretty fabulous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right because I think he's also thought the Labor were going to win. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so that was a big part of the, the bounce back. But, you know, ultimately I think, uh, yeah, someone who's not there to, he's not really conflicted in his belief. He's just going, well, this is what I really believe. And I think that was um, was needed at that time. I think what's really interesting about Stuart, and I have, I'll confess to being a bit of a fan, um, is of his Investopoly podcast is a, is a really great podcast. And we've had him on, we've had him on the show, I think three times now. In fact, in the last year we had him at the height of COVID and also we've had him uh, towards the end of the year episodes 126 and 162 if anyone's interested because he is very evidence-based he doesn't get emotional about this stuff you know he's very very matter of fact it's like well you know I've actually sat down and I've looked at history I've looked at the numbers I've I've analyzed this I've analyzed that and and he's he's he shows his workings if you like and that's why the other reason why I quite like the fact that he might have made the right call but says he got it for all the wrong reasons it's like doing your maths exam and getting the answer right but actually your workings are wrong (laughs) he shows his workings and I think that that's really important because he does have he's one of the very few people who obviously understands um the economy in a broader sense. He's a financial planner as well as a mortgage broker, but and you know he certainly uh, looks at the share market. He, he looks. He doesn't just look at property. He's not. A, he's not a property person per se, but he's one of the very few financial people who actually seems to understand the fundamentals of property, and that that's a real rarity. Um, and I think also that what it comes down to, he talks about evidence, but it's also it's human behaviour, and that's really fundamentally at the core of it. And this is where if if um, one of the the things that are that are in my research around why forecasts are shit is basically uh, I think it was Ross Gittens was writing about that economists are trying to use math, ma- mathematical equations to uh, as a as a proxy or to predict human reactions, and it doesn't work that way. 
you know, you can't actually put everything in formulas. So, and I think that that's where, where Stuart's quite interesting because he's very evidence-based, but, but it's, it doesn't have to be mathematical for it to work. It has to be, well, what has, what have people done in the past? What are they likely to do in the future? So, um, and I think one of his, one of his uh, podcast episodes, which I think I've referred to before, it's just a classic. It talks about um, all these unprecedented things and yes, they will have, they can have catastrophic um, impact. Um, but just because it's, this is unprecedented doesn't mean that our reactions are unprecedented. The way in which we react to these big things is sort of predictable. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, and I think it's interesting with bricks and mortar and people look for safety at times and how property at times of, you know, fear is seen as, you know, we've got to protect the house, we can't move out, you know, mm. it's our home, so that stops a lot of stock. Um, you know, people have seen great returns in property, so they think, well, it's always going to go up, so then you get investors entering, which also supports the market, um, and then interest rates and people willing to say, well, now it's my time to upgrade or now it's my time to enter the market because I've been pushed out or my first home buyer. So, now, when things aren't great, then you've always got this sort of other demand and low supply, uh, people not wanting to sell because they've got that inherent belief. And so these things really always play out. I think the other gold uh, star, oh, do you want to say? Oh, I will, but just, just to finish up on Stuart. So Stuart didn't actually make a prediction in the sense that he didn't give a number, right? So he's quite yeah. careful not to, to stick his neck out like that. But what he did say is that it's not going to be, you know, the carnage that is being predicted. That will not happen. It will be more resilient and um, and that's why he has proven to be correct. And, um, well, it's, well, it's not why he's proven to be correct. He has been proven to be correct but he hasn't actually stuck a number on it. So, therefore, he can get a gold star because of that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the other thought leader on your personal favourites is Christopher Joy. Yeah, so... Chris Joy has called it all um, and, you know, I think uh, it's we've actually tried to get him on the podcast multiple times. I can't get him on for some reason. but <laughs> Send him um, a copy of this com- report and the last. Hopefully yeah. you'll realise you're a fanboy. Uh, yeah, and I think he's <laughs> – what I think it's interesting is um, Chris runs a bond market fund or, you know, short-term sort of uh, funding options, you know, cash and et cetera like that. So I think he's got a very good understanding of the impact of interest rates um, and a very good understanding of the property market. You know, I think he was, um, you know, something to do with the, you know, Howard days in the government. He was advising on how to do a sort of home, you know, sort of scheme. Uh, he's been an analyst at the Reserve Bank, et cetera. So I think that's what's really, you know, helping his knowledge is the impact of credit and how credit drives human behaviour and, uh, you know, how drops in the interest rates impact prices. And, you know, he's come up with a big call. He basically said, look, there's not really going to be any meaningful fall, maybe at best 5%. Um, and he said that uh, at the height, when I think it was April, when everyone else was, you know, the market's going to crash 30%. So, uh, and it was in the AFR and it wasn't, you know, it doesn't hide from it. And uh, even at the start of 2021, he's wrecking 20 to 30% rises. So that's a big call. I'm looking forward to see how that one goes next year. But, I think um, you got to take your hat off. He has pretty much called the 2017, 2018, 2019 and 2020. So well done, Chris. Yes, yeah, so that's that's the other gold star. As I said, we'll come up with the third one in a minute. But with that, I'm actually personally a little surprised at the what I think are quite conservative um, forecasts and predictions for next year based on what is currently happening. And I don't know how long this run can you know, this run can go for, it will run until it runs out steam and 
then it'll go down again like it will all the time. But I think the thing is that when when catastrophic thing happens, big, dramatic, unprecedented things happen, we all seem to think that the market stopped and that's it forever now. You know, it, it's like, and I know it's that sort of that catastrophic sort of thinking that we have and, and I've, I've had to pull myself up on this. It's like, <laughs> you know, this is an it for property in this country, <laughs> you know. It, it, ever the dust will settle and things will just kick on again, you know what I mean? And and that does make me laugh a little bit. So the the fairly conservative um, uh, increases that are predicted by some, you know, like maybe 7 or 8% for the year, I think th- honestly I'm seeing that in the first couple of months of this year. Yeah. And I, yep. I know I'm in inner Sydney, um, but the regional areas are in many cases are out are seeing demand well in excess of even in inner Sydney. So and Melbourne I hear is back on the march, Brisbane's back on the march, you know, so so we're seeing prices move very visibly week by week here and that's pretty dramatic. So it'll be very interesting when we reflect on this next year to see, uh, you know, who, who's, who's picked it in retrospect. Now I think the uh, – we need to talk about our other gold star. Now, the gold star goes to Simon Presley, and the reason I'm reticent to give this gold star is because he is potentially he is sort of perennially positive about property, and so therefore it's impossible to get it wrong when the market goes up and there's only a few people saying it's going to go up, um, and one of those people is a person that's always talking the market up, you know, and so that's why I'm a bit a bit reticent to award the gold star, but I guess credit where credit's due, he did. Um, I did see an, uh, a video that he put out at the very beginning of, you know, of lockdown and it was basically it was titled Safest Houses and, you know, I watched it and I was, you know, I was thinking, I was being quite wishful thinking. I remember at the time thinking to myself, I hope he's right. You know, he sort of turned out to be right. But the problem is that not every house is safe. Not every person owning a property makes money. Not every person owning a property doesn't lose money, and we all know that. And so that's why I'm nervous about awarding the gold medal here because it's it's not every, you know, the rising tide does not lift all ships. And and that's that's that nuance that I that I fail to see, I guess, in that sort of um in those sort of claims. But he was talking it up when everyone else other than uh, Stuart and Chris were talking it down. So, I mean, um, yep, I think Simon, we don't work with Simon's business, um, maybe different aligned ph- uh, philosophies, I guess. Um, but, I mean, he's not always positive. He's very sometimes anti the capital cities. He says, well, Sydney's got no more oh, run, running it. Yes. Um, and right. um, maybe you should be investing in this regional town because of um, these reasons and it's cheap and it's affordable and, um, etc. So uh, he does like to talk up the areas that they are buying, why they why they're buying there, uh, and then talk down the areas that they're not buying, and usually the capital cities. Sorry, you're absolutely right. What I probably should have said is always talking it up somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's actually what the distinction that you've you've made there, and that's absolutely true. You, what you're saying is right, but it's like there's always somewhere to buy. <laughs> yeah, that's what yeah. makes me nervous. Yeah, exactly. And so I think you've just got to uh, be very careful with those type of people. There's uh, people who are always sort of use uh, the spruikers out there will always talk the market up. And I did find a number of articles that were doing uh, that through COVID and we haven't put them in there because of the reasons that we know the properties that they're purchasing for clients uh, and they're recommending to clients 
are not great properties and they just have a sales pitch on why property prices will always go up, migration, uh, undersupply, you know, demographics, uh, you know, etc. cetera. Uh, and they just have this sort of spiel that they will just say forever and ever um, and, uh, yeah, I don't think they're worth publishing. Now, if you want to listen to some of the past episodes over the last year about data and predictions, we recommend going back and checking out Saul Eslake. Uh, that was back in 152. Warren Hogan, uh, episode 158. Pete Wargent, 118. That was one of our COVID uh, episodes. Eliza Rowan, clearly she is our favourite because we've had her four times over the last year, 115, 135, 159 and 169 plus she's back next week um martin north i think we need to get martin back um 143 and 123 i think um i'm I'm very proud of our episode our first time we met martin you know i really did think i was going to be arguing with him the whole time but it didn't turn out that way at all and um (laughs) and so go back and listen to the first episode with martin if you want to find out why not why we didn't do that i don't have the number off the top of my head and we also interviewed nicola powell from domain economist chief economist from domain in episode 140 so so we have had some really amazing guests that have shared some some really fascinating um insights you know over the year that not limited to these people talking about data and predictions but um certainly across lots of uh, lots of the elephants that we do talk about and also the suburb trends episodes every month with kent lardner yeah i think the big learning for me doing this report is uh yeah be very careful to uh attach to this event that happens uh and think that everything's going to change forever and um, don't get dragged into that sort of media hype. And I think that's a, but also I think the danger is just as much when markets are booming. We're seeing clients that are becoming uh, frustrated really fast, you know, fed up because what they thought was possible is not possible. And they're starting in their brain to want to ease that pain, whether they're going to buy a poor asset. So now we'll buy a townhouse, not a house, or maybe we'll buy an apartment, or maybe we'll just do it, buy an investment property and give up on the home and, um, can already see human behaviour starting to shift because it's a tough market to buy and prices are moving. Mm. Uh, and that's not a good option because if you think market's going to move, you know, 15, 20% in the next year, that will not be to all properties. Some properties will do a lot more than that. And I think some will still be the same price in 12 months' time, if not lower. So just be very careful um, in, at the moment with the overhype. Yes, that is a big danger that um, it's all too hard and just, give up and or it's all too hard oh no I'll just go and buy something that's easy to buy or it's all too hard I'll just pay whatever and and it is a very different difficult market to navigate there's no doubt about that yeah the giving up's a really tough one um you know or I'm going to wait six months to see how things go and so things change you know might lose your job or you might want to take a new job or a different career or you know, uh, something happens, you need to use that money for something. And so what was possible um, not only might not be possible because of the market, but it also might not be possible for your situation. So you've got to be careful gambling about what's possible today might not be possible tomorrow. Actually, I was talking to somebody very recently who have been, it's been on the cards to upgrade their home for the, for two years. They've had to sell uh, property, they've had to change things and get things organised and it looked like they were finally ready. And then one of the change jobs yeah 
I was like, why would you do that now? Now you need to, after all that prep time, now is not the time to do that. Now you need to go and get that property, then change jobs. Uh, anyway, yeah. I was a bit surprised. Yeah, that happened to a client very recently, resigned, um, you know, didn't have another job to go to. Uh, and then there's this gap more than 30 days in their employment history, which banks are very nervous on at the moment. Um, you know, they don't mind if you're swapping job to job. You know, there's a real sort of reason why you can do it and it's very obvious. Maybe it's a pay rise, maybe it's a better organisation. Doesn't Bank doesn't care. But if you have these gaps, they're a little bit more nervous on them. And so, you know, you have your 30 days plus then you need two payslips. Maybe they want you to go probation. Um, and so you might be losing six months out of the market, which could be 5%, 10%, maybe. Uh, which is hundreds of thousands of dollars maybe. So we just managed to fold in a Dumbo and a boot camp in one little conversational chat there. The Dumbo <laughs> don't change jobs now if you are you know, ready to buy a property and the boot camp is if you're going to change jobs, how should you do it? Well, ultimately you really want to have a job to, to go to uh, and you know, be a similar industry. You don't want to be going from a dentist to a I don't know, another job starting with D, a digger. Um, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Something completely different. Uh, banks are switching onto that. And uh, be also careful if you're looking to buy regionally. We've had clients caught up, caught out where they're saying, I'm buying the place regionally and I'm going to move there and uh, work haven't actually signed off on it. Mm. And so you can't get pre-approval uh, on a property sometimes if it's regionally uh, and you say it's going to be a home. So just be careful with things like that because you know, swapping jobs and buying properties in different locations. Uh, banks are switching on to these things. What's the trap for young players, that one? All right. Well, you can download your free 2021 full or forecast report now on theelephantintheroom.com.au. That's a wrap for the 2021 report. Uh, there is more information in the report, uh, all of our references and a lot more information around how forecasts are put together and and why you shouldn't rely on them. So you could just listen to this and make your mind up or have a read. Anyway, thanks for joining us. Please join us for our next episode, one of my favourite topics. It's the pain and gain report. We have Eliza Owen from CoreLogic joining us and we're going to be talking about not one but two of the last pain and gain reports, the September quarter 2020 and December quarter 2020. What has COVID done to the property market across the country? What's the difference in terms of loss-making property sales? We're bringing it all to you next week. Hot off the press. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.